we can call these up as needed. You know, when the energy is low, we can call up that energy. When it feels too high, we can call up one of the uh, tranquility factors. And even in particular ones, uh, anytime we practice sitting, walking, and we want to feel a little more energetic or we want to feel a little more of that discernment and so forth. We just call up the particular factor that we feel um, would be helpful or that even that we want to know, we want to understand more. Sati is the first one, pure awareness. Uh, And it grows by having something to be mindful of. And those are the sensations of the body, feeling, tone, uh, all mental states and consciousness itself, and all other phenomena. Uh, from the practical point would be hindrances, awakening factors, the six sense fields. Uh, learning how to rest in this awareness, even turning awareness upon itself to understand more the nature of sati. And then dhamma is that discernment investigation, the experiential exploration of the nature of the body, elemental nature, uh, as in the particular textures, the earth element, hard and soft, and, and the cohesive fluidity nature of, of water element, and the heat element, all kinds of temperatures, even te- different temperatures, different areas of the body, outside, inside. You can explore that. You can have the intention at times to experience a particular element of the body. And the air element would be understanding more its support nature. That's how we can sit up, uh, reach, walk, Think of wind in a sail, uh, a firmness, tension. That's one end of the the arc of the air element. The other is movement, oscillation, down to tingling and very subtle vibration. And this discernment quality also begins to assess what is skillful, what is unskillful in terms of mental states, in terms of our practice style, like when we're driving, when we're pushing, striving, and uh, reflecting on that and uh, feeling, it's, feeling it as a hindrance. And then correcting error, just making a little adjustment so we come at it more from ease. And that virya, the courageous energy, which translates also as balanced effort. You know, always having to either pull it back, mostly pull it back, because our striving nature 
uh, and and step it up when we need to. When we feel the hindrance, for example, of sloth and torpor, virya opposes sloth and torpor. And by the way, investigation opposes doubt. The clarity that comes from understanding the nature of the body and mind through that discernment uh, brings the clarity that's the opposite of doubt. It dispels particularly the unhealthy doubt, like chronic indecision. Healthy doubt is you know, always questioning. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Those lead to like honest self-assessment and making whatever adjustments so that we feel the confidence and trust in the process. And then from the virya, we start gaining a, an interest and then a growing inner kind of uplifting. And I mentioned the five different kinds of, of joy culminating in the all-suffusing kind of joy. We just generally feel uplifted. The all-suffusing joy is then more, more balanced than the earlier uh, thrill or ecstatic feelings that we can also have. Uh, and then little or no attachment when we just can rest and feed on that inner joy, non-sensual dhamma joy or dhamma pleasure. As the, as the practice matures, if, you know, if we're leaning more or less always or too much on the joy, we start to feel, and the other energizing, you know, lots of energy, lots of joy, investigation, we'll begin to feel a subtle agitation in the mind. It's like we're all, the electricity is always on. So the next enlightenment factor called pusity in the Pali language is calm. And that's like it, it, turns, it turns the electricity down a bit, you know, like dimming the lights. So we adjust and see better and in in, see more clearly like a cat's eyes in the dark. And, the, and the, the calm will balance, begins to balance all those energizing, uplifting, enlightenment qualities. Calm is an inner composure. Everything starts to feel settled, like dropping in, physically dropping in, mentally too, just... The calm quality has a, an effect on all the other mental states, thoughts as well. So we begin to feel this soothing, this ease, ease of being, ease of body, ease of the mental processes, soothing. This too, we, we drink from. It's like suddenly coming, you know, joy is more like been on a long uh, hike, you know, or travel. And we see in the distance a pond and a shady tree uh, and the joy we feel, you know, just from seeing that in, in the short distance ahead. Well, calm is like reaching that and drinking from the clear pond 
and being in the shade of the tree. This a complete relaxation of our sense of being. And any disorientation starts to now feel uh, directional, oriented, you know, collected. Like the beginning, too, of the concentration process that comes. In one retreat with Saida Upandita, after a couple of months, I, I was experiencing a lot of the PT, a lot of the joy. Uh, and as can happen, you know, it's so satisfying, it's so uplifting that even as it gets subtler, so too does there's a craving for it. And the craving is, is, is hidden just by the nature of attachment. When we really like something, we're not really looking to see if we're hooked by it, you know. Or stickiness is a relationship of wanting to it. But so I was reporting these nice sensations, physical sensations, mental sensations, and just felt up a lot, you know. Uh, and so about the third time I gave that report, Sayadaw seemed really bored, picked up the newspaper, you know. Like, and I knew, okay, you know, what, what am I doing? So I just finished my report and waited. And so it gave me an instruction that was really interesting. He said to make a resolve to just watch uh, the a pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling tone, moment to moment. And we've mentioned re- resolve or making a determination previously. The more we practice the longer retreats, we, we start finding the usefulness of making those resolves, even though the short ones like, may the next five steps in this walking meditation, may there be exceptional mindfulness like that. So I, I made the resolve, may I watch the domain of Vedana, Sukha Vedana, pleasant, Dukkha Vedana, unpleasant, uh, Upeka Vedana, neutral feeling tone. Of course, sensations are there and thoughts are there and distractions are there. But when we get more concentrated and when we make such a determination, uh, just like once every time we go sit or before we walk, it works really well. So I did that. And so I was noticing a lot of the pleasant sensations uh, on the feeling tone level. So it wasn't particularly just absorbed into the actual tingly, vibrating, uplifting physical sensations, nor was I observing uh, the different states of mind, the uplifted consciousness, and so forth. It was just zeroed in on these, on the feeling tone primarily. After about you know, 24 hours of that, it's... I just started to have some insight, awareness of the impermanent nature of feelings, which is one of the reasons why 
we watch them, why they have their own you know, domain, body, feelings, mind or consciousness, all other phenomena. Because for the other reasons we've told you, it's a portal to liberation when we discern the difference between pleasant feeling and attachment, unpleasant feeling, aversion. Likewise, the other reason, or another reason why we observe them is they teach us about, quickly, about the impermanent nature of all things, the anicca nature, that everything is just disappearing the moment our awareness touches it. So that was, that was really sobering. And the attachment to these blissful sensations just dropped away. And it felt like sudden, suddenly becoming more sober, like unintoxicated by the craving I couldn't even see. So it, was, it wasn't unpleasant. I wasn't feeling dukkha. I wasn't going down. I just saw the as-it-is nature. And it just brought a balance. It's like the joy and then the calm. And since then, I also learned we, we can call up the calm if we feel the intensity sometimes of the energy, virya, or the piti. Just may the calm factor of enlightenment arise, or pasadi, if you want to use the Pali word, P-A-S-S-A-D-H-I. Calm by nature leads to stillness, samadhi. Usually, usually we see the translation of collectedness or uh, one-pointedness of mind, concentration. So it's as if all the streams, all the mental streams begin to flow together into one still pond. And we feel, that, can feel energetically, physically, mentally, we can feel that collectedness. It's a, it's a visceral feeling. The body-mind unification. Everything feels intimately connected, interrelated, like a oneness, sensation of of oneness. And because it's Vipassana concentration, uh, it's the basis of insight, where we start seeing the minutia, behavior of the minutia of body-mind experience. Um, the concentrate, pure concentration practice is called samatha. They, they're going for the goal is the serenity, the serenity, one-pointedness of concentration. That's the aim. Uh, and there, there are methods, even in our lineage, our tradition, of cultivating samatha first. So it's a temporary purification of the mind. When you're really concentrated, hindrances can't get in there. Just puts them at bay. In, in a way, it's like kind of closing down the sense doors and just having a single thing to focus on and not letting that go. 
you know, was every waking hour the mind is pinned, fixed to that meditation object. Um, and then the, the, these qualities called jhanas, absorption, just, just very deep concentration. Michelle mentioned the other night the jhanic factors. We talk about vichara, just connecting and sustaining awareness. And then piti, it's the same piti. Um, sukha. Sukha is very much like the contentment we feel with pasiti, calm. Calm, ease, soothing, profound sense, everything's okay as it is, a kind of contentment. That's what the sukha mind state is like. And ekagata, one-pointed mind, everything coming together. Uh, so there's like different jhanas, four different jhanas culminating in a equanimity-like jhana. When we do concentration practices in the Vipassana, we develop a concentration that's just enough. It's right on the edge of an access or, or absorption level concentration. Just think of absorption as a concentration that's too deep to attune to the nature of arising and passing sensations, mind states, sounds, and so forth. So the Vipassana concentration, known as kanaka or momentary concentration, right on the edge, doesn't go into absorption, and it's just attuned to phenomena as it, is, as it really is. It's just feeling the scent and the flavor and the sound, and visual experience, bodily touch sensation, mental states, exactly as they are. Getting my mindfulness, getting the unique and universal natures, just as they are. In actuality, there are what we call vipassana jhanas, the same kind of experience, the vitaka, vichara, that, that's the strong jhanic factors in the first jhana, piti, the strongest quality in the second jhana, sukha, contentment, uh, uh, spiritual happiness, the third jhana, and the vipassana, two, the same. They correlate with different insights, seeing the arising and passing, insight into the nature of arising and passing, the early tender stage of that and the mature stage of that where we've moved past attachment, and bright lights, excitement, over-enthusiasm and so forth. And then the fourth jhana equivalent in the Vipassana is the equanimity, the insight stage uh, that culminates with this this balance, which the next the next awakening factor I'll be talking about. So we're not really missing anything, you know. A lot of people uh, lean a lot toward the pleasurable aspects of a concentration practice, and it's understandable. It gets it feeds people in, in areas and fills places of bereftness and 
emptiness and so forth, with really a lot of really good qualities. And then if they're skillfully directed, you come out of the absorption and turn toward, they actually first turn toward watching the dissolution of that absorption consciousness. And then just see what comes up, physical, mental, and so forth. I, I practice first the Vipassana. And it's often a policy at the uh, Mahasi uh, Monastery in Burma, particularly for those who are not really sure how long they're going to be there. If they're only coming for a short time, they want to be sure the students get Vipassana, wisdom practice, and not just learn how to get peaceful and potentially attached to that peace. So I practice the, the um, Samatha practice after some proficiency in, in, the, in the Vipassana. And then side by side, I was taught ways to integrate because I, as the as a concentration practice, I use the Brahma Viharas, going deep with each one individually, you know, as did Michelle. It really implants it, like on a cellular level, in in our in us. Um, and I, I I saw the, the seductive nature of it. It was really, truly a beautiful practice, particularly with the Brahma Viharas, because you're getting two things at once. You're getting the mind concentrated and purified by a pure concentration practice, but also we're calling up these innate spiritual emotions of unconditional love, compassion, empathetic joy, and the Brahma Vihara equanimity. But, it, and I really enjoy going back and forth. It's said that the Samatha practice or the Vipassana practice. Vipassana is like swimming across the ocean. And samatha practice is like taking a boat. <laughs> Vipassana, you're just thrown right into the dukkha, right? And immediately dealing with the dukkha. The samatha, we get, you get concentrated pretty quickly and you don't deal with the dukkha. <laughs> so, I mean, we did the Rama Viharas first, right? And so those of you who did that, you, you had the force of that practice as a basis and likely a lot of less physical dukkha for the Vipassana. So that, that going back and forth is, is pretty awesome. One year I came for another retreat to Upantita and I couldn't, you know, what I had, my practice was like two weeks of Brahma Vihara concentration practice and then integrate it with the Vipassana. I couldn't get it going. It felt like just a constant buzz in my mind. You know, like the buzz on the amplifiers. Constant zzzz. And I felt bad. I felt like I was failing. I felt like I lost it. I didn't know what was happening. So I would just report to Saida Mandita a few times that just wasn't getting started. And then and then he saw something that I didn't see. He said that the power of the wisdom practice 
was calling me stronger than the concentration practice. That bliss, you know, the happiness of the concentration practice. And so that's what I did. And then I just had an insight, you know, some days or a week or so later, the kind of happiness from Vipassana, as, as great as the, the you know, bliss of being absorbed in unconditional love or compassion, joy, and so forth is, kind of happiness from insight practice, from the wisdom practice, I could see was even more refined. It made me even more happy and content, connected, and just the sense, this is right. This is right. I, I still combined, you know, in the next retreat I could do, I could do that other practice again. It was almost as if, you know, the Dhamma was just showing me the, like, what was really important, what was really of great value. In the, when, when we have this Vipassana concentration, the sixth factor of awakening, it's when we have this, like, symphony of awareness, the sixth Sixth-sense symphony of awareness. You know, so as you get concentrated, let go of just the body and the, and the breath anchor, then it's just how it's how, like a symphony plays. And sometimes it's a, the sound of the body sensations, and sometimes it's you know, audible sounds and visual parts of the symphony and uh, mental states. It's just playing in that way, and this, this receptive awareness that's, that at times tunes into various sections of the symphony, the stringed or the percussion, uh, and so forth, the tuning in. And other times it's just taking in the whole symphony at once. The whole process, it's like, I was experimenting with this last month at, at a symphony in Sydney, Australia. It's at times the violin, um, uh, featured artists was just extraordinary, you know. But then I had to open up to everyone accompanying her, the other cellists and violinists and um, uh, piano, so forth. And it was just like the whole the stream of sounds and the silences between the sounds. Not any one area. So it was like this whole fabric of sound, pulsing, just kind of like moment to moment. That's what we do when this, with this concentration. When we really kind of tuned in. We can go right down into the minutia of things, or we can open up to the, the whole symphony of experience. It's said that um, like like all these rafters leading to the ridge pole, uh, all mental states lean in on the ridge pole of concentration. It's like the conductor of the orchestra, we could say. The Vipassana concentration, the collectedness, the stillness it brings, uh, and the, the focus, the ability to attune to things as they are. Uh, and seeing, watching things until the moment 
they disappear. Sometimes it's so incredibly fleeting that we touch the sensation, it's gone. Mental states even quicker. So we're pretty much at certain levels of concentration, just watching or feeling or sensing disappearances. The Buddha said, one with, one with samadhi knows as it really is. Yata Buddha. The translation Yata Buddha means as it is. Or in, in the Zen tradition, they say suchness. Just things as they actually are. Not any thoughts about it, not the conceptual. We don't suddenly compare with what we heard or read or thought about. All of a sudden, it's like just being plugged in, just tuned in. It experiences showing itself. It experiences doing the work. The as it isness includes the awareness of the phenomena. It's not like somewhere being aware and of things happening out there. It's including the awareness itself. Disappearing the moment it's aware of something, both the, the, what's being known and the knowing vanish like that. The, um, these six awakening factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, calm concentration, culminate in equanimity, upeka, which means to look upon or look over. It's not looking away from anything, totally looking at everything like a 360 awareness. It's just not reacting. It's not clinging after certain experience, either because it feels good or because it's an insight. We can cling to insight stages. That happens before there's equanimity. It's called a corruption of insight. Upakalesa. A corruption of insight. The hindrances follow us. They're never too far away. They're always kind of close. Michelle was talking about Mara, the personification of greed, hatred, delusion, who shadowed Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, trying to prevent him from becoming Buddha, even trying to shame him off of his seat of enlightenment on that final night before his enlightenment. And then Buddha affirming his worthiness in the face of that. You know, really, it's all taking place in his own heart. But then it said, you know, the mythology continues that Mara always shadowed the Buddha throughout his whole teaching life for the next 40 years, Um, often just trying to talk him out of teaching because Mara is supposed to be the the king of the sense realm. And his, his purpose is to keep everyone attached to pleasant sights and sounds and senses mind states and so forth. So, you know, Buddha, you have a bad bath, you know? Maybe you should rest more. Maybe you should think of retirement. 
so forth. And the Buddha said very articulately, just not until every nun and monk and laywoman and layman fully understand, comprehend, and know, have deep knowledge and understanding themselves of, of the discipline and the teaching and the path and the practice and the fruits of the practice completely and fully, only then will I stop. And other times it said that Mara's shadow would be around and the Buddha would lift his finger up and say, I see you, Mara. And then Mara would run away, run away and cry, you know. It's, it's, it's a good practice sometimes when we feel, you know, shadowy energy. You say, oh, I see you, Mara, in our practice, in our life. So, upeka, equanimity, mental, physical, evenness, balance, equipoise, in the face of the vicissitudes of life, everything compellingly uh, pleasant, alluring, beautiful, attainable, everything that's uh, aversive and dislikable, that we don't want, we want to reject, push away. The mind with upeka mind, upeka heart, it's unaffected. So like I mentioned before in a previous talk, bamboo mind, like the winds of circumstance can, can bend but never break. Bamboo just goes this way, it goes that way, but its immediate nature is to come back. It's, it's very hollowness, it's very vulnerability, is its strength. That's a, a firm in yielding, and that's the sensation. Sometimes it feels like the heart, mind of equanimity feels like water, right? Water can be both firm and yielding. That's like how we swim, you know, just... Think of water, not quite the temperature that it is here, maybe more like Hawaiian waters, you know, Southeast Asian waters. Go in at any time, and it just feels lovely. It just feels supportive, perfect temperature. With the equanimity and the culmination, all the seven factors come together like one mind. And, and then the purest mindfulness comes out of the equanimity. So then we think of it not in stages, one feeding and leading to and maturing in the next one, but like this necklace of jewels. This all happening simultaneously, all glowing at once, as, as one mind. Uh, and when they're all in balance, there's just enough energy and there's just in the tranquilizing nature from the calm and concentration and the balance of mind, you know, it's just working like, like this, a little bit yielding, a little bit firm. It can't be so stiff, you know, and that it's um, breakable. But just bending a little bit. And, and really, we're always correcting the imbalances. Every moment, we're mindful. We're either lifting up the energy or toning it down, bringing up the calm or pulling it out of too much absorption. The mindfulness does that itself. It, if there's 
if it's more radical, like long sustained periods of too much energy, too much of one of the energetic factors, or too much absorption, you know, going for the peace and spacing out or sinking mind, then we, we call up our own wise reflection and, and say, well, it'd be really helpful now to call up such and such, you know, lift the energy, or I'll call up the calm, turn down the energy a little bit, and just see which one seems appropriate. The soothing, ease, contentment of, of calm, pussity, or the, the coming together of all sort of fragments of our mental states and thoughts, everything, everything coming together, coming together as one. If we feel the need for that kind of focus, then we, we call up the samadhi. You know, may the samadhi factor of awakening, may it arise. Re-engage at concentration when we feel, you know, befuddled, confused, just too many thoughts, too much happening at once. The the stage is is set for really profound insight. Insight when these cultivated awakening factors come together. We can't make that happen. We can't make the insight happen. But we've readied the body, mind, nature by being aware, by being in this container, first externally and then internally, cultivating these qualities, being these qualities, so that we begin to attune to the, the way things are, how things arise and pass away, or their dukkha nature, the unreliability, vulnerability, unsatisfactoriness, because they're falling away, moment to moment. Or the anatta nature, that there's our ultimate, all experience, all conditioned experience is ultimately uncontrollable. There's no way to make it go the way we want. It's just going to go the way it is. Uh, and there's no controlling agent. There's no one there to make anything happen. And each of those insights are are liberating. There's a joy that comes with each insight. There's increasing joy all the way along the path. The Buddha said that this path is to be trodden only with joy, not with dukkha. Dukkha is a truth and it's a reality. But the insight into dukkha doesn't make us duped out. We just see the truth. And that's what is so liberating, and that's what causes this profound inner joy, better than all the previous kinds of joy, all the, all the kinds of piti. The joy of insight is superior to all of those, even more refined, even more settled, and because it's based on seeing the truth, 
it, it feels real. It feels uh, deeply, profoundly liberating, shifting our way of viewing things, the way of receiving things. So sometimes we seem inclined either by nature or by particular retreat circumstance to attune more to the anicca nature, impermanent nature of condition phenomena. Sometimes more we're seeing the dukkha nature, either by disposition or by the conditions of a certain retreat attuned to that. And at other times more the, the anatta nature, the selfless and uncontrollable nature of phenomena, condition, experience. Everyone a little bit different. The Buddha, of course, had this ability to know exactly where someone was at, at the right time, the right circumstance. In one story from the text, there's this um, command, military commander who had just successfully protected the borders of, of the kingdom from an invasion uh, and was being celebrated. Uh, and there was dancers and great food and all of that. His name is uh, Commander uh, Santiti. And Santiti immediately fell in love with one of the dancers. Totally one of those karmic moments, right? Uh, and she suddenly just fell over and died. And he just went into this deep grief. And the next day, he went to see the Buddha. The Buddha wasn't at the party. <laughs> and since shared his grief, you know, they found the love of his life and, and she just died right in front of him. And the Buddha embraced this grief with his care, with his compassion. And Santati felt that. He felt the, the soothing, caring energy and all these awakening factors just suddenly came together for him because he was very astute and had the conditions, the spiritual virtues called parami, ripened. And so the Buddha said, Santati, let go of all thoughts of the past. Let go of all thoughts of the future. Let go of the present. Hold on to nothing at all in this very moment. And that's all it took. And Santati said to reach the, the first stage of enlightenment, saw the Dhamma, the taste, stream entry. And um, I think the next night he became fully enlightened. <laughs> he took off his military garments, put on the robes. A very similar, actually exactly the same teaching another time. There was uh, this show that included acrobats, like a circus with acrobats and and Santati was, uh, uh, the acrobat Ugasena, was known for his great skill. Climb up a pole and balance at the top of a pole, like the, the height of this building. And 
can do eight somersaults on this narrow little pole. Eight somersaults. And he was great. And he knew he was great. You know, he was the star of the show. And so, but the Buddha saw from a distance with his inner vision that Ugasena was ripe. Also, his paramis were ripe. Just a little bit full of himself. You know? And so, he went up different circumstance. Santati was deep in grief. Ugasena was full of himself. And the Buddha caused the crowds to pay attention to him just by exercising his charismatic powers. And that brought the pride out of Ugasena. And, and, and so he's still on his pole. He never gets off of his pole. He's balancing on the pole with his thumb or his fingers. You know, He had been doing the somersaults. And the Buddha said, Ugasena, do not hold on to any thoughts of the past. Let go of all thoughts of the future. Do not hold on to anything at all in this very moment. And while still on top of the pole, he became fully enlightened. Anywhere along the way, before we even hear of a particular path, or maybe when we first hear of it and get interested, maybe we've entered the path and have, been, have done some practice uh, or a few retreats or so, so on. Maybe many retreats and have developed greatly these sata bojanga, seven factors of awakening. Anywhere along the way, maybe all along the way, we have this emotion. Michelle mentioned it the other night. It's an emotion that feels like suddenly we feel seized by something powerful. It's a good kind of sense of being seized. The word sambega and usually translated as as some spiritual urgency. But really, it shouldn't be mistaken for how we might often think of urgency, so that we pursue it with a drive and an attachment, attachment to a goal, and so forth, which is really counter, not so healthy. It's, it just lifts us up an, enough to get a feeling that life is precious and, and relatively very short. We never know when we are taking our last breath any, at any age. Uh, and by looking around us and at all life forms and so forth and being able to feel the vulnerability of life and health and sickness and so forth, we just realize that what am I going to do? You know, what should I do with this life? This precious, relatively short life, you know, whether it's uh, eight years or eighty years. Still, you know, Michelle's talked about my mom, who did live to a long age, but. 
she kept remarking, you know, once she reached 90 all the way to 97, she said, this has gone by so fast. I was just a little girl. And one night, in the middle of the night, I heard her stomp, you know, in her room, and, I, and we had moved her in her house, and I went down, and she was looking in the mirror, and she says, I need to get to that little girl, you know? It's like, and then at other times when she was quite lucid and articulate, she'd just say, how, how, how fast is all in? Just like a few years. So that's how it felt. So some Vega is like that. And we feel, we feel held and motivated to do something. Do something that we can, while we can. So that San Vega can take us to, take us all the way, you know, that the purpose of the awakening factors is to show us the nature of how the Buddha presented it in terms of the Four Noble Truths, so that we understand dukkha. That that's what we're called to do, understand dukkha, not fear it, uh, try to get rid of it, simply to understand it. And then secondly, to abandon the cause of dukkha, which is the word tanha, means something like insatiable thirst. So it's a craving that is never satisfied. No matter how much we get of whatever we crave, it's always this tanha, it's always, it's never satiated, it's never quenched. And so that wanting, that continuous wanting and trying to hold on to is the cause for for dukkha. Uh, Physical, mental, and deluded dukkha. So we don't even have to be in pain to, to be, you know, in this, to be caught in dukkha. It's just being alive and the nature of change and the nature of trying to control things. The third noble truth is that we realize total non-attachment. We realize the liberation, perfect peace of Nibbāna. Ultimately, permanently, and all along the way, every moment we are fully mindful. Every moment we are fully mindful, and all these awakening factors are engaged, is like a momentary Nibbāna. There is no wanting. And we, we, can, we know that by the level of ease and contentment and non-grasping, not clinging. The equanimity that's not rejecting, not holding on, not grabbing. The peace, deep equanimity is very similar, very much like the, the peace of Nibbāna. When that's, when that's experienced. And the fourth noble truth is walking the path to liberation. This path of mindfulness and the 
uh, Eightfold Path or the Seven Factors, really they all they do the same thing. To toward every moment, so that we become this path, and there's no separation. Our life is our Dhamma practice. Our Dhamma practice is our life. There seems to be no separation. Elementally, we start feeling we have the same components as the rest of the universe. You know, and, and emotionally, we start feeling related to all parts of ourselves and other beings as well. So we're making. We're here to make the practice our own. It's, it's, it's when the seven factors of awakening are developed, they are our own. It's, it's not to be compared with what we've heard of what we've read and so forth, what the Buddha said. We just, we just become them. I was uh, writing out tonight this sense of the vastness kind of inner and outer vastness and how when we turn awareness inward it's just as vast you know the way that the Buddha described these great states the Brahma Viharas as well as the qualities of awakening culminating in equanimity as immeasurable vast and immeasurable sublime uh, and then just thinking of space and how the light we see in the stars at night is, is the past. We're always looking at the past. It's like looking at the sensations and thoughts come and go, moment to moment. It's just delusion to solidify. I think we're here and space is out there. You know, we occupy this very unusual planet in a small corner of our Milky Way galaxy, which is part of this galaxy, uh, t- two trillion galaxies, each of which have billions of of um, systems within them, within each one, and then everything is held together by dark matter, and no one knows what dark matter is. Scientists like to say often, you know, 90-something percent of the universe is missing. They, they know it exists because uh, the gravitational pull of dark matter is what makes these galaxies clustered together in some areas. And light bends around them. Light bends around the gravitational pull. So that way they figure out, oh, there's this thing. Let's call it dark matter. We just don't know what it is. And it's the same. It's like we're not looking for that kind of information in our practice. We're just looking to attune to what's true. Uh, And our body knows what's true. Our body and our awareness knows the truth. So it's not information, dukkha and uh, unquenchable thirst and liberation and the path to it is just how things are. It's not information. Of course, we're teaching conceptually. 
you're hearing things, but you're immediately putting it to your own practice. You know, our job as yogis is to take what we hear and make it real for ourselves. See for ourselves what's true, what's not true. And, and just as I was doing that, Michelle, uh, thinking those thoughts and writing them down, Michelle sends this quote, quotation from Albert Einstein, who said, the distinction between the past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. I, I like the sense of mystery and timelessness and, and nothing the way we might think or hold it in the conceptual space and time. It's all warped and bent and weird. You know, everything is really weird. As Upandita liked to say, life is really strange. <laughs> life is really strange. So I'll finish with a story that embodies embodies all all these qualities. I think. Uh, and years ago, I was practicing in India before anyone was allowed in Burma with a, that special meditation visa. Uh, and I was at the Japanese temple in Bodhgaya practicing for a few months over the hot season in the mid-70s. Uh, and the abbot there was this older Zen master, older, like he was probably 40, right? Uh, and he and I would practice together. I, I had a, a job in order to stay there. I had to do a job. And my job was to uh, have an onsen with him every night. You know, those Japanese furos. Really cold water, really hot water. Uh, that was my job. Uh, and um, then he, he'd work all day. He'd, there was a school, there was the, the pilgrimage house that was visited by tourists, mostly tourists from Japan, and beautiful you know, landscape, Zen-type landscape. Then he'd sleep at 10 and wake up at 2. And at 2 we would meet, go to the temple, because it's hot season, we'd go under, open this like medieval-type wooden dungeon thing on the floor and go down because it was cool. It was cool underneath there. And we'd sit. We'd sit till six. One four-hour sit. And I, I was so excited, you know. It was just, I adored him. And I, you know, I thought he was like the Buddha, right? I keep looking at him because I, I never saw him move an inch. I think, how does he do that, you know? It must get sleepy. And for weeks and weeks, you know, six weeks, nothing ever seemed to happen. He'd just sit. And I didn't even see him look at a timepiece at six o'clock. He'd ring a little bell. We'd blow out the candle, go upstairs. And then maybe 12 or 15 Westerners would be there from Bodhgaya town, from other um, 
monasteries and guest houses, and we do a little sitting session, sitting and walking around in a circle, and then go outside on the veranda of the temple, face the Bodhi tree just as the sun was coming up, and bow, and then he'd turn and bow to me and then to each of the Western yogis who were there, uh, Ohio Gazimus. Good morning, Ohio Gazimus, to each of us. And then he'd start his day. Uh, one time there was a fairly large party of tourists from Japan, uh, and they were really just partying, you know, a lot of sake and cigarettes and photos and stuff uh, of everything, capturing spirituality, you know, and their lenses. And he was really tired, and he had gone to Patna and had this discussion, difficult discussion with the authorities back in Japan. So he was, I could tell he was tired that night at 2, two o'clock, uh, even at the onsen, and it wasn't quite as sparkly. So we went down at 2 and sitting. Uh, this time, there was a vibe of seriousness in the air. Every time I peeked, he was slowly bending over, you know, like the hour hand of a clock, slowly bending over. It took him four hours, bent over, almost touching the candle with his head. But just before that happened, he just sat right up, rang the bell. It was 6 o'clock. <laughs> and we went upstairs. Yogis were there. We did a sitting and a walking. Went out to the corner, bowed to the tree. It was also full full moon. So the full moon is setting. The sun is rising. In the shadowy landscape of the Zen garden by the pond and reeds and stuff, there are all these tourists. The tourists were out with their cameras to catch this important spiritual moment. And those are the days of celluloid, celluloid film, you know, not uh, instant digital stuff. So lots of cameras are going, just ready to go off. And he yelled, he yelled this word that means stupid fool in Japan, in Japanese. Yelled it with such a fierceness, it was like a lion's roar. I felt like everything shaking the temple, uh, the garden, the people, the foam was flying everywhere. <laughs> the sky seemed to shake, even the Bodhi tree a few hundred meters away. You know, it was like, whew, I just, terror went through me, a jolt of terror. And his fierceness was felt because they all vanished. <laughs> Tourists just vanished. And he turned around and started to bow, and I was frozen. I couldn't even get my hands together. And he just waited, really waited. Finally, I, I looked at him, and there was just this twinkle in his eyes, and the shine from the setting moon in one eye, and the shine from the rising sun in the other eye, and this little impish smile, you know, Ohio Gazimus all the way down the line. There, to me, was the embodiment of all these, of all the qualities, equanimity and energy, you know, fierce energy, and also calm, focus, attunement. 
What was that? Let's sit a moment. May our skillful effort and calm, concentrated, equanimous mind lead us to the highest peace and happiness of liberation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.